Trev glowered. The look on Andy's face was transparent. He was lying. He knew he was lying. He knew everyone else knew he was lying, and he didn't care. In fact, he rather enjoyed the situation. Andy's boots looked heavy enough to moor a boat. They got him like the meat in a sandwich, sir, Trev complained to the referee. Can you substantiate that, young man? Well, you can see what's happened to the poor bugger. Yes, but do you have any evidence of collusion? Trev went blank, and Nutt supplied in a whisper. Can you prove it was a set-up? Can anyone? said the referee, looking around the players. No one could. Trev wondered how many might, were it not for the fact that Andy was standing there, innocent as a shark. I am the referee, gentlemen, and I can only referee what I see, and I saw nothing. Yeah, because they made sure of that, said Trev. Anyway, listen to the crowd. They all saw it. Look, they've got boots on them that could strip bark, Ridcully protested. Yes, indeed, Mustram. I mean, sorry, Captain, but as yet there are no rules about which boots should be worn. And, at the very least, these are the boots that have been traditionally worn for the game of foot the ball. But they're man-traps! I can certainly see what you're getting at, but what would you like me to do? said Henry. I have a suspicion that if I cancel this match at this point, you and I would not get out of here alive. "'because even if we ourselves did escape the wrath of the crowd, "'we would by no means escape the wrath of Vetinari. "'The game will continue. "'Unseen academicals can play a substitute, and I will—let me see,' "'he pulled out a notebook. "'Ah, yes, I will award a free kick at the very point "'where this unfortunate incident took place. "'And may I add that I will look askance at any future incidents. "'Mr. Hoggett, I trust that you will make this clear to your team.' Blow that for a game of soldiers, Trev yelled. They just took out our best players, and you're going to let them walk away grinning. But the referee was, after all, the former dean, a man used to head-to-head -head confrontations with Mustram Ridcully. He gave Trev a chilly look, and turned very deliberately to the Arch-Chancellor, and said, And I trust you, too, Captain, will impress upon your team that my decisions are final. There will be a five-minute interlude for you to do this, and can some of you fellows take poor Professor Macarona off the field and see if you can find some quack to look at him? A voice behind him bellowed, You have one right here, sir. They turned. A figure slightly larger than life, wearing a top hat and carrying a small bag, nodded at them. Dr. Lorne, said Ridcully, I wouldn't have expected to see you here. Really, said the doctor. Wouldn't have missed it for the world. "'Now, some of you men drag him over to that corner, and I'll take a look at him. "'I'll send my bill to you, shall I, Mustram?' "'Wouldn't you like to take him somewhere nice and quiet?' said the referee. "'No fear. I want to keep my eye on the play.' "'They're getting away with it,' said Trev, as he walked back to the line. "'Everyone knows they're getting away with it.' "'We still have the rest of the team, Mr. Trev,' said Nutt, lacing up his boots. "'He had, of course, made them himself. They looked like foot-gloves.' "'And me, of course. I am the first substitute. "'I promise that I will do my best, Mr. Trev.' "'Thus far it had been a rather boring afternoon for the librarian "'after his one little moment in the sun. "'It really was rather dull between the goalposts, "'and he was getting hungry, "'and so was pleasantly surprised by the appearance of a large banana in front of the goal. "'It was later agreed that, in a footballing context, "'mysteriously appearing fruit should have been greeted with a certain amount of caution.' but he was hungry, it was a banana, and the metaphysics were sound. He ate it. Glenda, up in the stand, wondered if she was the only one to have seen the startlingly yellow fruit in its trajectory, and then saw, looking up at her from the crowd with a big grin on her face, Mrs. Atkinson, mother of Tosha, himself something of an unguided weapon. Anyone who had ever been in the shove knew her as a perpetrator of all kinds of inventive assaults. She had always got away with it, because no one in the shove would hit an old lady, especially one standing next to Tosha. "'Excuse me,' said Glenda, standing up. "'I've got to get down there right now.' "'Not a chance, love,' said Pepe. "'It's shoulder to shoulder, a shove and a half.' "'Look after Juliet,' said Glenda. She leaned forward and tapped on the shoulder of the nearest man. "'I've got to get to the bottom of this as soon as possible. Mind if I jump?' He looked past her at the glittering figure of Juliet and said— "'Not at all, if you get your girlfriend to give me a big kiss.' "'No, but I'll give you one.' "'Er, uh, don't trouble yourself, miss, but come on, then, give me a hand.' 
It was a reasonably fast descent, as she was passed from hand to hand, accompanied by ribaldry, much genial horseplay, and a definite feeling of satisfaction on Glenda's part that she was wearing her biggest and most impenetrable pants. This was slightly modified when she realised that none of the spectators had tried any hanky-panky whatsoever. Elbowing and kicking people out of the way, she reached the goal just as the banana was consumed in one gulp and stood panting helplessly in front of the librarian. He gave her a wide smile, looked thoughtful for a moment, and went over backwards. High up in the stand, Lady Margolotta turned to Vetinari. "'Is that part of the game?' "'I fear not,' he said. Ladyship yawned. "'Well, it relieves the boredom, at least. "'They've spent far more time arguing than playing.' Vetinari smiled. "'Yes, madam, it does look as if football is very much like diplomacy, "'short periods of fighting followed by long periods of negotiation.' Glenda prodded the librarian. "'Hello? Are you all right?' All she could hear was a gurgling. She cupped her hands. "'Man, er, uh, someone down here!' To another chorus of boos, and, because this was Ankh-Morpork, cheers, the travelling committee, which was what the game had now become, hastened over to the unseen academical's goal. "'Someone threw a banana, and I saw who did it, and I think it's poisoned,' said Glenda, all in one breath. "'He's breathing very heavily,' said Ridcully. The comment was unnecessary, as the snores were making the goal rattle. He crouched down and put his ear to the librarian's chest. "'I don't think he's been poisoned,' he said. "'Why's that, Arch-Chancellor?' said Ponder. "'Because if anyone has poisoned our librarian,' said Ridcully, "'then, although I am not by nature a vindictive man, "'I will see to it that this university hunts down the poisoner "'by every thaumic, mystic, and occult means available "'and makes the rest of their life not only as horrible as they can imagine it, "'but as horrible as I can imagine it. "'And you can depend on it, gentlemen, that I have already started work on it.' Ponder looked around until he saw Rincewind. "'Professor Rincewind, you were, I mean, you are, his friend. Can't you stick your fingers down his throat or something?' Uh, "'Well, no,' said Rincewind. "'I'm very attached to my fingers, and I like to think of them as attached to me.' The noise of the crowd was getting louder. They were here to see football, not a debate. "'But Dr. Lorne is still here,' Rincewind volunteered. "'He makes a living out of sticking his hand in things. He's got the knack.' "'Ah, yes,' said the referee. "'Perhaps we can impose upon him to take another patient,' he turned to Ridcully. "'You must play your other substitute.' "'That would be Trevor Likely,' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'No,' blurted out Trev. "'I promised my old mum.' "'I thought you were part of the team,' said Ridcully. "'Well, yes, sir, sort of. Helping out and all that. "'I promised my old mum, sir, after Dad died. "'I know I was down on the list, but who would have thought it would have turned out like this?' Ridcully stared at the sky. "'Well, it seems to me, gentlemen, that we cannot ask a man to break a promise made to an old mum. "'That would be a crime more heinous than murder. "'We will have to play with ten men. "'It appears that we will have to go without.' "'Up in his ramshackle box, the editor of the Times picked up his notebook and said, "'I'm going down there. It's ridiculous to sit up here like this. "'You're going on the pitch, sir?' "'Yes. At least that way I can see what's happening. "'I don't think the referee will allow that, sir.' "'You're not going to play, Trev?' said Glenda. I told you. How many times do I need to tell people I promised my old mum? But you are part of the team, Trev. I promised my old mum. Yes, but I'm sure she'd understand. That's easy for you to say. We'll never know, will we? Not necessarily, said a voice cheerfully. Oh, hello, Dr. Hicks, said Glenda. I couldn't help overhearing your conversation, and if Mr. Likely could tell me where his mother's buried, and the referee was to give us a little leeway in regard to time, well, it could be possible that I— Don't you put a shovel anywhere near my old mum, Trev screamed, tears rolling down his face. I'm sure we all understand, Trev, said Glenda. It's always difficult with old mums. And she added, not really thinking what she was saying, and I think Juliet will understand. She took him by the hand and towed him off the pitch. Trev had been right. It was all going wrong. The buoyant certainties of the beginning of the game were fading. "'You gave away a goal, sir,' said Ponder, as he and Ridcully lined up for the next encounter. "'I have great faith in Mr. Nut in goal,' said Ridcully. "'And I'll show them what happens to people who try to poison a wizard.' The whistle blew. "'Get down and give me twenty. "'I'm sorry, gentlemen. I don't quite know why I said that.' What happens to people who try to poison a wizard, at least in the short run, is that they have an advantage in a game of football. 
The absence of Professor Macarona was a deadly blow. He had been the pillar around which the university strategy had been built. Emboldened, United went for the kill. Even so, the editor of the Times thought, as he lay down at the very edge of the pitch alongside his iconographer, the wizards were just about managing to hold their own. He scribbled as fast as he could, trying hard to ignore the gentle shower of pie wrappings, banana skins, empty greasy pea bags, and the occasional beer bottle being tossed onto the pitch. And who is that with the ball now? He glanced at the little crib sheet of numbers he'd managed to jot down. Ah, right. United had broken into the UU side of the field, and there was Andy Shank, an unpleasant man by all accounts, and surely that wasn't a normal footballing procedure? Other players had lined up around him, so he was running in the middle of a group of bodyguards. Even the other team members themselves did not seem to know what was going on. But Mr Shank nevertheless managed a creditable strike at the goal, which was expertly snatched out of the air by Mr Nutt. He glanced at his crib sheet. Ah, yes, the orc, and added in his notebook, who is clearly adept at grasping big round objects. But then he felt ashamed and crossed it out. Despite where we are lying, he said to himself, we are not the gutter press. The Orc. Nut danced back and forth outside his goal, trying to find someone who looked in a position to be able to do something with a ball. Can't hang around all day, Orc, said Andy, staying in front of him. Got to let it go soon, Orc. Not much help for you now, is there, Orc? They say you've got claws. Show us your claws, Orc. That will bust your ball. I believe that you are a man with unresolved issues, sir. What? Nut drop-kicked the ball over Andy's head, and somewhere in the mob that fought for it there was a crunch, which was followed by a yell, which was followed by the whistle, and the whistle was followed by the chant. It began somewhere in the region of Mrs. Atkinson, but spread oh so quickly. Ork, 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 ork. Ridcully got to his feet, standing unsteadily. "'The buggers have got me, Henry!' he yelled, in a voice that could hardly be heard over the chant. "'Kneecap! Bloody kneecap!' "'Who did it?' the referee demanded. "'How should I know? It's a bloody mess, just like the old game. "'And can't you get them to stop that bloody chant? That's not the sort of thing we want to hear!' Arch-Chancellor Henry raised his megaphone. "'Mr. Hoggett!' The captain of United pushed his way through the rabble, looking very sheepish. "'Can't you control your fans?' Hoggett shrugged. "'Sorry about that, sir, but what can you do?' Henry looked around the hippo. What could anyone do? It was the mob, the shove. No one was in charge. It hadn't an arse to kick, a wrist to be slapped, or even an address. It was just there, and it was shouting because everybody else was. "'Well, then, can you at least control your team?' he said. To his surprise, Mr Hoggett looked down. "'Not entirely, sir. Sorry about that, sir. It's how things are.' "'One more instant of this kind, and I will cancel the match. "'I suggest you leave the field of play, Mustram. "'Who is the substitute captain?' "'Me,' said Ridcully. "'But under the circumstances I appoint Mr Nobbs as my deputy.' "'Not Nobby Nobbs!' exclaimed the former dean. "'No relation,' said Bledlow Nobbs very quickly. "'Well, that was a good choice at least,' said Trev, sighing. "'Nobsy is a clogger at art.' "'But it's not supposed to be about clogging,' said Glenda. "'And do you know what?' she added, raising her voice against the steel roar of the crowd. "'Whatever the old dean thinks, he can't stop the game now. "'This place would just blow up.' "'You think so?' said Trev. "'Listen,' said Glenda. "'Yes, I think you're right. You ought to get out of here.' "'May? Not a chance.' "'But you could make yourself useful and get Juliet out. "'Get her as far as Vimesy and his lot. "'I bet they're waiting right outside the gates.' "'Do it right now while you can still get down the steps. "'Won't get a chance once they start to play again.' "'As he left, Glenda walked unheeded down the touchline "'to the little area where Dr. Lorne was standing guard over his patients. "'You know that little bag you brought with you, sir?' "'Yes. I think you're going to need a bigger bag. "'How's Professor Macarona?' "'The Professor was lying on his back, staring at the sky "'and wearing an expression of bland happiness.' "'Sorted him out easily enough,' said the doctor. "'He won't be playing again any time soon. "'I've given him a little something to make him happy. "'Correction, I have given him a big something to make him happy. "'And the librarian?' "'Well, I got a couple of lads to help me turn him upside down, "'and he's been throwing up a lot. "'He's still pretty groggy, but I don't think it's too bad. "'He's as sick as a parrot.' According to Fletcher's Avian Nausea Index, parrot sickness stands at number five in the Wishing Yourself Dead Index. 
The highest level of sickness is that suffered by the great combovered eagle, which can vomit over three countries at once. This wasn't how it was supposed to go, you know, said Glenda, out of a feeling that she should defend the bloody mess. It generally isn't, said the doctor. They turned as the noise of the nearby crowd changed. Juliet was coming down the steps, glittering. The silence followed her like a lovesick dog. So did Pepe and the reassuring bulk of Madame Shan, who might be a useful barricade in case the hippo became a cauldron. Trev, tagging along behind them, seemed like an afterthought in comparison. "'All right, dear, what's this all about?' said Pepe. "'I ain't going,' said Juliet. "'Not while Trev's in here. I ain't leaving without Trev. Pepe says he's going to win the match.' "'What have you been saying?' said Glenda. "'He'll win,' said Pepe, winking. "'He's got a star in his hand.' "'You want to see him do it, Missy?' "'What are you playing at?' said Trev angrily. "'Oh, I'm a bit of a conjurer, me. "'Or maybe a fairy godmother?' "'Pepe gestured around the arena. "'See that lot? "'Their ancestors screamed to see men killing one another "'and beasts tearing decent folks apart. "'Men with spears fighting men with nets "'and all that kind of ugly shite. "'And they have cart-tail sales here every other Sunday,' added Glenda. "'It's always been the same.' said Pepe. It's one big creature, never dies, crying and screaming and loving and hating all down the generations, and you can't tame it and you can't stop it. Just for you, young lady, and for the soul of Mr. Trev, I'm going to throw it a bone. Won't take a mow. His slim and slightly spidery form disappeared back up the steps just as the whistle blew. Glenda made out Bledlow Nobs taking the kick, but Ridcully had made the mistake of thinking that a man who was as big as he was was as clever as he was. And there it was. It was the old game all over again. United were stampeding down the pitch, the old cloggers making way for Andy's army as they bore down against Nutt. The kick took him in the chest and lifted him into the back of the goal. The whistle blew and was followed by, "'Don't touch that, boyo! You don't know where it's been!' which was followed by, I really am very sorry about that, I don't know why it happens, which was followed by, absolute silence, which was broken by one voice, likely, 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 it started up in the stand, somewhere near where Pepe had gone. The beast had forgotten the name Orc, but certainly remembered the name Likely, a name that had fed it so often, a name it had given birth to and eaten, a name that was football, the very heart of the beast, and here, on this broken field, it was a name to conjure with. Likely, likely, likely. Hardly a grown man hadn't seen him. He was the legend. Even after all these years, it was a name that cut through other loyalties. You told your grandchildren about him. You told him how he lay there bleeding, and maybe how you dipped your handkerchief in his blood and kept it for a souvenir. Likely, intoned the baritone of Madame Shan. Likely, whispered Glenda, and then likely... She could see the little figure running along the top of the stands, the chant tailing after it. Tears streamed down Trev's face. Mercilessly, Glenda looked him in the eye. Likely, likely. But my old mum, Trev wept. Then Juliet leaned over and kissed him, and for a moment the tears were silver. Likely. Trev stood clutching and unclutching his hands as the chant went on. Then he gave a sort of shrug. Then he took his battered tin can out of his jacket pocket and handed it to Glenda, before turning to face the pitch again. "'I'm sorry, Mum,' he said, taking off his jacket. "'But this is football, and I don't even have a jersey.' "'We thought of that,' said Glenda, "'when they were being made.' She pulled one out of the depths of her bag. "'Number four. That was my dad's number.' "'Yes,' said Glenda. "'We know.' "'Listen to him cheering, Trev.' Trev looked like someone trying to find an escape clause. I've never even trained with the new football. You know me, it's always been the tin can. It's a football. It's just a football, said Nutt. You'll get the hang of it in a second. The former dean strode up. Well, this is all very gratifying, with a touch of welcome pathos, ladies and gentlemen, but it is time we continued this football match, and I would be very grateful if all non-players could stand back behind the touchlines, he said, shouting to make himself heard above the noise of the crowd. Trev left Nut at the goal. "'Don't you worry, Mr. Trev,' said the Orc, grinning. "'With me saving and you striking, we can't lose.' "'They won't get me the same way a second time.' He lowered his voice and grabbed Trev's shoulder. "'When it starts to get hot down this end, run like stink towards the other, and I'll make sure you get the ball.' Trev nodded and walked across the turf to the cheers of the crowd. 
the editor of the Times later reported as follows. At this point, United seemed to feel that they had a working strategy and poured every resource into the university's side in a melee that was clearly beyond the referee to control. The plucky orc custodian had also learned a lesson and two or three times recovered the day with magnificent saves, on one occasion kicking the ball, in our opinion, directly at the head of one of the milling opponents, stunning him and then catching it upon the rebound, dropping it onto the boot and sending it far into the opposing half where Trevor Likely son of the famous football hero, ran pell-mell towards the goal where Mr Charlie Barton had happily been provided with a chair, a table, a late lunch and two stalwart defenders whose clear purpose it was to see that none shall pass. All breathing in the park surely ceased as the young paladin fired off a tremendous shot which was, alas, out by a few inches and only served to rattle the woodwork and rebounded towards the defenders. Nevertheless, likely tackled like a man possessed and spirits lifted once again as the two defenders got in each other's way just sufficiently for the boy to once again power the sphere back towards its intended resting place. Your correspondent believes that even the supporters of United joined in the groan as once again this second shot failed to find a slot and this time rebounded almost to the feet of H. Capstick who lost no time in sending it screaming towards the academical's end before it could do more harm. Once again, the indefatigable Mr. Nutt warded off a number of attacks, while the rather pathetic remnant of the university boys' defence proved that prowess with the magic wand is of little avail if you do not know what your feet are for. At this point, Master of the Dark Arts, Dr. J. Hicks, was summarily dismissed from the field after the crowd's persistent chant of Who's the Bastard in the Black? alerted the referee to his attempts at endeavouring to strike down F. Brisket, one of the notorious Brisket boys, with the soul-eating dagger of the deadly vampire Spider Queen, which, as it transpired, turned out to be neither magical nor, as it turned out, made of metal, but one of a number of similar items available in Boffo's Joke Emporium, 10th Egg Street. Ranting apparently fearful oaths about university statute, Dr. Hicks had to be dragged from the field by members of his own team, leaving our spirited magicians in an even more depleted spell of difficulty, probably wishing they had a magic carpet to get them out of there. At least Dr. Hicks's tirade and attempts to drag the ground with him bought them some time. Glenda ran onto the pitch to a dishevelled and downcast Trev. What happened, Trev? she said. You had it right there in front of you. You had it in your hands. Well, on your boot, anyway. It doesn't do what I want, said Trev. You're supposed to make it do what you want. It's just a football. "'Yeah, but I'm trying to learn with all of this going on. "'Well, at least you nearly did it. "'We haven't lost yet, and it's still only the first half.' "'When play was resumed, according to the editor of the Times, "'a certain amount of backbone had been retrieved by the men in pointy hats, "'and Captain Nobbs led a concerted attack "'in an attempt to further interfere with Charlie Barton's lunch. "'But to the dismay of all, the son of Dave Likely "'still appeared to have only a nodding acquaintance "'with the art of goal-scoring.' and it appeared very much that his only chance of putting one away would be to have the ball wrapped up and sent via the post office. And then, to the shock of all, the occult gang appeared to prove that they were far better at billiards than football, when another of Likely's powerful but directionless attempts rebounded again off the goal onto the head of Professor Rincewind, who was, in fact, running in the opposite direction, and was in the back of the goal before anyone, including Charlie, knew where it was. This got a cheer, but only because the game now appeared, in our opinion, to be a comedy routine. Alas, there was no comedy about the fact that in several parts of the hippo, fights were breaking out between gangs of rival supporters, doubtless inspired by some of the shameful performances on the pitch. As the two sides trooped or hobbled back to their places, the referee called the captains together. "'Gentlemen, I'm not quite sure what we are doing here, "'but I'm quite certain that it's not exactly football, "'and I'd look forward to the inquiry later on. "'In the meantime, before anyone else is injured, "'and especially before the crowd start to tear this place apart "'and eat one another, "'I will tell you that the next goal scored will be the last one, "'even though we are still only in the first half.' He looked meaningfully at Hoggett and said, I sincerely hope that some players will examine their consciences. If I may coin a phrase, gentlemen, it's sudden death either way. I will give you a few minutes to impress this upon your teams. 
I am sorry, sir, said Hoggett, looking around. Some of my lads are not people I would have chosen if you get my drift. I'll give them a good talking to. In my opinion, that would only work if you were hitting them with a hammer at the same time, Mr. Hoggett. They are a disgrace. And do you also understand me, Mr. Nobbs? I think we'd like to carry on too, never say die. And I would not like to see death here either, but I suspect that your request for extra time is in the hope that Mr. Lightly will learn how to play football. But I fear that will not happen in a month of Sundays. Well, yes, sir, but can't you— Hoggett began. Mr. Hoggett, I have spoken, and I am the referee, and right now I am the nearest thing to the gods. I am the nearest thing to the gods. It came back as an echo, softer, brighter. He looked around. What? Did you chaps say something? Nearest thing to the gods. There was a sound like glowing, but the ball was still in his hands, wasn't it? He stared at it. And was it just him, or was there something in the air, something in the air, the silveriness of fine winter days? Trev did an embarrassingly jiggly little run on the spot as he waited. When he looked up, there was Andy Shank watching him. "'Your dear old dad must be having a fit,' said Andy, cheerfully. "'I know you, Andy,' said Trev wearily. "'I know what you do. "'You corner some poor tosser and taunt him until he loses his rag, "'and so he starts it, doesn't he? "'I'm not rising to it, Andy.' "'Not rising to anything very much, are you?' "'Not listening, Andy,' said Trev. "'Oh, I reckon you are.' "'Trev sighed again. "'I've been watching you.' You and your chums are bloody masters at sticking the boot in when the ref ain't looking, and what he don't see he can't do nothing about. Andy lowered his voice. Well, I can do something about you, Trev. You won't be walking out of this place, I swear it. You'll be carried out. There was the sound of the whistle, followed by the unstoppable, Any boy who has not brought his kit will play in his pants. Sodden death, the former dean said, and the sides collided. Andy emerging with the ball at his feet and his dishonour guard flanking him at either side. Ponder Stibbons, in the path of their advance, calculated quite a lot of things very quickly, such as speed, wind direction, and the likelihood of being physically trodden into the turf. He made an effort at any rate, but ended up flat on his back after the collision. As the editor of the Times put it, in this scene of despair, dismay, and disarray, one lone defender, Nutt, stood in the way of United's winning goal. There was a roar immediately behind Nutt. He daren't look round, but someone landed on top of the goal, making it shake, dropped down, and indicated by means of one huge and horny thumb that Mr Nutt's assistance was no longer required. There was a green crust around the librarian's mouth, but this was nothing to the fire in his eyes. At this point, according to the editor of the Times... Seemingly nonplussed by the return of the wizard's famous man of the forest, Shank essayed another attempt at the winning score, which was stopped one-handed by the librarian and effortlessly thrown back into United's turf. With everything to play for, it seemed to us that every man on the pitch was chasing the ball as if they were a pack of boys scuffling in the gutter for the traditional tin can. However, Mr Nobbs, who we are assured is no relation, was able to make some space to give the unlucky Mr Likely another attempt at following in his father's footsteps, which he failed to do by the width, from our estimation, of about half of one inch, and the ball was snatched up by big boy Barton, who then collapsed, choking, having stuffed, we understand, a considerable amount of pie into his face to keep his hands free. "'It shouldn't be like this,' said Glenda, and the thought echoed back in her head. "'It shouldn't be like this.' "'Trev has to win. It can't go any other way.' And her voice came back again. "'Could you get echoes in your own head? "'They were going to lose, weren't they? "'They were going to lose because Andy knew how to break the rules. "'The rules. I am the rules.' She looked around. But apart from the doctor and his groaning or, in Ridcully's case, cursing charges, there was no one near her apart from Juliet, who was watching the game with her normal faint smile. "'Good heavens! All he needs is to get only one goal,' said Glenda aloud. "'I am the goal,' said the quiet voice from nowhere. "'Did you hear that?' said Glenda. "'What?' said Juliet. She turned, and Glenda could see that she was crying. "'Trev's going to lose. I am the ball.' This time it had come from her pocket, and she pulled out Trev's tin can. 
As Dr. Lorne gave a groan and hurried back up the pitch towards the choking Charlie, as the Times later put it, she followed him and caught up with Mr. Nobbs. If you ever want a cup of tea and a piece of cake again in your life, Mr. Nobbs, you kick the ball towards me. You will know where I am because I will be screaming and acting silly. Do what I say, OK? Do what she says, OK, he heard her voice echo. And what will you do, throw it back? Something like that, said Glenda. And what good is this going to do? It's going to win you the match, that's what. Can you remember Rule 202? She left him wondering, and then hurried along to Mrs. Whitlow and the cheerleaders, who right now had nothing to cheer about. I think we should give the boys a really good display at this time, she suggested. Don't you agree, Juliet? Juliet, who had been dutifully following her, said, Yes, Glenda. Yes, Glenda. And there it was again, one sentence, two voices. Mrs. Whitlow was not the sort of person who would take an instruction from the head of the night kitchen, but Glenda leaned forward and said, "'It's the Arch-Chancellor's special request.'" The resurrection of Big Boy Barton was not an easy job, and there were possibly fewer volunteers for putting their fingers down his throat than there had been for the librarian, and his emptying and cleaning up took a little more time. As the referee summoned the teams back into position, Glenda arrived out of breath and handed him a piece of paper. "'What's this?' "'It's the rule, sir, but you will see I have put a ring around one of them.' He glanced at it and said dismissively, "'Looks like a lot of nonsense to me.' "'It's not, sir. Not if you look at it a bit at a time, sir. It's the rule, sir.' Arch-Chancellor Henry shrugged and stuffed the paper into his pocket. For a moment, Bledlow Nobbs glanced at Glenda, defiantly out of place amongst the cheerleaders. Glenda was known to be generous to her friends, and she made the best tea in the university.' This wasn't about football. This was about a hot mug of tea and possibly a doughnut. He leaned down to Nut. Glinda says I've got to remember Rule 202, he said. Nut's face brightened. Clever idea, and of course it will work. Did she tell you to kick the ball out of the pitch? Yes, that's right. Are we going to cheat? said Bedlow Nobbs. No, we are going to stick to the rules. And the thing about sticking to the rules is that it's sometimes better than cheating. Nobbs's chance came soon enough, surprisingly with an obviously misdirected pass from Hoggett. Had Hoggett been standing very close when they'd been talking? And had he just said, go for it? It sounded very much like it. He kicked the ball straight towards the cheerleaders, where Glenda snatched it out of the air and pushed it into the folds of Mrs. Whitlow's skirt. You haven't seen this, ladies. You haven't seen where it is, and you're not moving for anyone, okay? As the crowd booed and cheered, she pulled the tin can out of her bag and held it up in the air. "'Ball lost!' she yelled. "'Substitute ball!' and threw the can directly towards the Bledlow, who was quick enough to flick it on to Nut. Before any other player had moved, it landed with a little gloing sound on the end of Trev Lightley's boot. According to the editor of the Times, "'We have been assured that no magic was used on the day of the match, and it is not my place to contradict the honourable faculty of Unseen University.' All your correspondent will say is that Trevor Likely kicked the ball, against all probability, towards the academical's goal where he stood, apparently waiting for the stampede of the enraged United squad. What followed, your correspondent must declare, was not just a goal, but it was a punishment and it was a retribution. It was writing the name Likely for the second time in the annals of football history, as Trevor famous son of a famous father, wiped the floor with United, wrung them out, and did it all over again, running, dodging, sometimes obligingly kicking the ball directly towards a defender who then found it heading off in quite a different direction, which just happened to be where likely was now. He taunted them, he played with them, he caused them to collide with one another as they both went for a ball that inexplicably was no longer where they were sure it had been. And it must have come as a relief to the more steady members of United when he relented and skipped the ball over the head of their standby keeper, Mickey Pulford, latterly of the Wapping Street Wanderers, and into the net, where it circled and then returned to land precisely on the tip of Likely's boot. The silence spread like warm butter. Glenda was sure she could hear distant birdsong or possibly the noise of worms under the turf, but definitely the sound from Dr. Lorne's impromptu field hospital, the sound of Big Boy Barton chucking up again. And then, where the silence had reigned, sound poured like the gush of water from a broken dam. It was physical, and it was complex. 
Here and there the spectators started chanting, all the chants of all the teams united and harmonising in one perfect moment. Glenda watched in amazement as Juliet... It was like the fashion show all over again. She seemed to light up from the inside, bars of golden light floating away from the micromail. She started to run towards Trev, tearing off her beard, and, Glenda could see, gradually rising from the ground as though she was running up a stairway. It was a strange and wonderful sight, and not even Charlie Barton, still throwing up, could detract from it. "'Excuse me,' said Mr. Hoggett. "'That was a goal, wasn't it?' "'Yes, Mr. Hoggett, I think it was,' said the referee. Hoggett was pushed out of the way by Andy Shank. "'No, it went to one side. Are you bloody blind or what? And it was a tin can!' "'No, Mr. Shank, it was not. Gentlemen, can you not see what's happening in front of your faces? Look, everything that happened was perfectly legal under the rules of the game. Rule 202, to be precise. It's a fossil, but it is a rule, and I can assure you that no magic was used. But right now, gentlemen, can you not see the golden lady floating up in the air?' "'Yeah, right. That's just more weird kid stuff, just like that goal.' "'This is football, Mr. Shank. It's all weird kid stuff.' "'So the game is over,' said Mr. Hoggett. "'Yes, Mr. Hoggett, it is. "'Apart from, and I insist on drawing your attention to it, "'a beautiful golden lady floating over the pitch. "'Am I the only one seeing this?' "'Hoggett glanced towards the rising Juliet. "'Yeah, right, very pretty. "'But we've lost, have we?' "'Yes, Mr. Hoggett, you have clearly and emphatically lost.' And, just to be precise, said Hoggett, there are no more, like, rules, are there? No, Mr. Hoggett, you are no longer subject to the rules of football. Thank you for that clarification, Your Worship, and may I also thank you on behalf of United for the way you handled the trying events of this afternoon. With this, he turned and punched Andy full in the face. Mr. Hoggett was a mild man, but years of lifting a pig carcass in each hand meant that he had a punch that even Andy's thick skin had to reckon with. Even so, after Andy had blinked a few times, he managed to say, "'You bastard!' "'You lost us the game,' said Hoggett. "'We could have won fair and square, but you had to muck it up!' And those around him felt able to murmur in support of the accusation. Me? It wasn't me. It was that bloody Trev Likely and his little orc chum. They was using magic. You can't say that wasn't magic. Just skill, I assure you, said the former dean. Amazing skill, certainly, but he is well known for his prowess with the tin can, which itself is a veritable icon of football. Where is that bloody Likely, anyway? Glenda, eyes fixed on the centre of the pitch, said in the voice of someone half-hypnotised, He's rising up in the air as well. "'Look, you can't tell me that's not magic,' Andy insisted. "'No,' said Glenda. "'You know what? I think it's religion. Can't you hear?' "'I can't hear anything, dear, with all the noise from the crowd,' said the former dean. "'Yes,' said Glenda. "'Listen to the crowd.' He did. It was a roar, a great sky-filling roar, old and animal, and coming up from the gods knew where, but inside it, travelling like a hidden message, he made out the words.' They swam into focus, if indeed the ear could focus, and if he was actually hearing them with his ears, they might have been coming through his bones. If the striker thinks he scores, or if the keeper cries in shame, they understand not the crowd's applause, I make and hear and earn again, for I am the crowd and I am the ball, I am the triumph and the blame, I am the turf, the pies, the all, always and ever I am the game." It matters not who won or lost. Nothing is the score you made. Fame is a petal that curls in the frost, but I will remember how you played. And it stays there, Glenda thought, like sound in a banner. Everybody one part of it. Juliet and Trev began to float down, hand in hand, turning gently until they landed lightly on the turf, still kissing. A sort of reality began to leak back into the arena, and there are some people who even when hearing the voice of the nightingale, will say, "'What's that bloody noise?' "'Cheating bastard!' said Andy, and launched himself directly at Trev, covering the ground at speed as the boy stood there with a very bemused but happy expression on his face. He did not notice the hell-bent Andy until a huge boot kicked him squarely in the groin, so hard that the eyes of all male watchers watered in sympathetic pain. 
For the second time in twenty-four hours, Trev felt the micromail sing as the thousands of links moved and just as quickly settled down again. It was as if a little breeze had blown up his pants. Apart from that, he hadn't felt a thing. Andy, on the other hand, had. He was lying on the ground, bent double, making a sort of whistling noise through his teeth. Someone slapped Trev on the back. It was Pepe. "'You did put my pants on, didn't you? "'Well, obviously not my pants. "'You'd have to be suicidal to want to put my pants on. "'Anyway, I've come up with a name for the stuff. "'I'm going to call it Retribution. "'Can't ever say it will be an end to war, "'cause I can't imagine anything putting an end to war. "'But it sends the force back the way it came. "'Didn't chafe either, did it?' "'No,' said Trev, amazed. "'Well, it did for him. "'My word, though, he's a game one.' That reminds me, I'll need a picture of you in them. Andy was rising slowly, elevating himself to the vertical almost by willpower alone. Pepe grinned, and somehow it seemed obvious to Trev that anyone who was going to get up and try any threats with Pepe grinning at him was more than suicidal. Got a knife, have you, you little squirt? said Andy. No, Andy, said Nut behind him. No more. The game is over. Fortune has favoured unseen academicals, and I believe the traditional ending is to exchange shirts in an atmosphere of good fellowship. But not pants, said Pepe under his breath. What do you know about that sort of thing? growled Andy. You're a bloody orc. I know all about you people. You can tear arms and legs off. You're black magic. I'm not scared of you. He came at Nut with commendable speed for a man in such pain. Nut dodged. I believe there is a peaceful solution to the obvious enmity between us. You what? Pepe and some of the footballers were closing in. Andy had not been making friends. Nut waved them away. I'm sure I could help you, Andy. Yes, you are right. I am an orc. But doesn't an orc have eyes? Doesn't an orc have ears? Doesn't an orc have arms and legs? Yeah, at the moment, said Andy, and leaped. What happened next? happened so fast that Trev didn't see the middle of it. It started with Andy jumping, and finished with him sitting on the ground with Nut's hands clamped around his head, claws out. Let me see now, Nut mused as the man struggled in vain. Twisting the skull with enough force to snap the spine and spinal column should not present much difficulty since it is a non-rotating joint. And, of course, the ear holes and eye sockets allow for extra grip in the manner of a bowling ball, he added happily. There was a horrified hush as he continued. Using the unit of measurement of force invented by Sir Rosewood Bunn, I should think that a mere 250 buns should do the trick. But of course, and possibly surprisingly, it is the tearing of the skin, tendons and muscles that would present me with some difficulty. You are a young man, and the tensile strength would be quite high. I imagine the skin alone would require a force of about a thousand buns. Andy yelped as his head was gently twisted. Oh, I say, look here now, said Ridcully. A joke is a joke and all that, but... From then on, it gets rather messy, said Nut. Muscle would tear off the bones comparatively easily. Andy gave another strangled yelp. But, taking it all in all, I would think a force of between three to five kilobuns should do the trick. He paused. Just my little joke, Andy. I know you like a laugh. I would also, I believe, be quite capable of putting one hand down your throat and pulling out your stomach. Go ahead, croaked Andy, and around the arena of the hippo the beast smelled blood. After all, it wasn't just horse racing that had taken place in the hippo over the centuries. The comparatively small amount of blood that had been shed today was nothing compared with the oceans of the centuries gone by. But the beast knew blood when it smelled it. The cheering and the chanting now picked up, and the words grew louder and louder as people rose to their feet. Orc! 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 Nut stood impassively, and then turned to the former dean. Could I please ask everyone else to leave? This may become messy. Oh, come on, said Trev. No way! Ah, well, said Nut. Maybe just the ladies. Not likely, said Glenda. In that case, would you please be so kind as to lend me your megaphone, referee, and I would be grateful if you would instruct some of the stronger players on the field to restrain Mr. Shank, who is, I believe, sadly not in his right mind. Wordlessly, it was handed over. Nut took it as the storm of orc, orc grew louder, 
walked a little way from the rest of the group and stood there impassively with his arms folded until the taunting stopped out of sheer lack of momentum. With every eye watching him, he raised the megaphone to his lips and said, "'Gentlemen, yes, indeed, I am an orc and will always be one. And may I say that it's been a privilege to play here today and to see you all. But I do gather now that being an orc in this city may be seen as something of a problem to some of you.' He paused. "'So I would ask you to excuse me if I request that this matter be sorted out between us now.' There was laughter, and some jeers from various parts of the ground, but also, it seemed to Glenda, the beast was calling upon itself for silence. In that pin-drop silence, the thud of the megaphone hitting the ground could be heard in every corner. Then Nut rolled up his sleeves and lowered his voice so that people had to strain to listen. He said, "'Come on, if you think you're hard enough.' First there was shock and then the silence of disbelief and the whisper of every head turning to every other head and saying, Did he really say that? And then someone high in the stands started to clap, at first slowly, and then at an accelerating tempo as it reached the crowd's tipping point, when not clapping would be unthinkable. Ceasing to clap was also unthinkable, and within a minute the applause was a storm. Nut turned back to the rest of the team with tears streaming down his face. Do I have worth he said to Glenda. She ran towards him and hugged him. You always did. Then, when the match is over, there are things we have to do. But it's been over for ages, said Glenda. No, it's not over until the referee blows his whistle. Everyone knows that. By Io, he's right, said Ridcully. Go on, Dean, give it the works. The Arch-Chancellor of Brazeneck University felt gracious enough to let that one pass. He put the gigantic whistle to his lips, filled his lungs with air, and sent the pea rattling. Despite everything, the shade of Evans the Striped had the last word. No boy is to fiddle about in the showers! As the crowd streamed down from the stands, trampling the now sacred turf, Ridcully tapped a gloomy Mr. Hoggett on the shoulder and said, It would be my privilege to change shirts with you, sir. He dropped his hat on the ground, pulled off his shirt and revealed a chest so hairy that it looked like two sleeping lions. The united shirt he received in return was somewhat of a tight fit, but that was unimportant because, as Andy had predicted, the unseen academicals were indeed picked up by the yelling crowd, except for Mrs Whitlow, who fought back, and carried in glory through the city. It was a triumph. Whether you won or lost, it was still a triumph. It is traditional on these occasions for the conquering heroes to spray bottles of champagne on the crowd. This did not happen. If a wizard succeeds in getting the cork out of a champagne bottle, he certainly does not intend to pour it away. You think it's all over? The wizards of Unseen University knew how to party. Pepe and Madame Shan, who was the same shape as most of the wizards and felt doubly at home, were impressed. However, business was business, and they had to think about Juliet. "'I can't see her anywhere,' said Madame. "'I think I saw two of her a while ago,' said Pepe. "'These fellows do themselves well. I have never seen such a large cheese board. It almost makes celibacy seem worthwhile.' "'Oh, do you think so?' "'No. By the way, have you noticed that very tall wizard giving you the eye, my dear?' "'That's Professor Bingo Macarona. Do you think he—' Madame began. Without a shadow of a doubt, my dear, I know he's hurt his legs, but I doubt if that would be a problem. Once again, Madame craned to search the crowd for the glittering figure. I do hope our young model is not getting involved in any hanky-panky. How could she? She's totally surrounded by admirers. It's still possible. In fact, Juliet and Trev were sitting in the darkness of the night kitchen. I'll find something to do, said Trev. "'I'll go wherever you go.' "'You ought to stay here and play football,' said Juliet. "'You know what some people said when we were drinking? "'They said Dave Likely was your father.' "'Well, yeah, that's true.' "'Yes,' said Juliet, "'but they used to say you were his son.' "'Well, maybe a bit of football,' Trev conceded. "'But I don't think I'll get away with a tin can again.' "'They kissed. "'There and then that was all that appeared necessary. "'However,' Glenda and Nut had also wanted to find a place a little out of the way, and, if possible, dark. 
Fortuitously, she had pulled out of her pocket a pair of tickets, placed there by Dr. Hicks in his attempt to spread darkness and despondency throughout the world by the means of amateur dramatics, to the Dolly Sisters Players production of Star Crossed by Huell the playwright. They sat hand in hand, watching it solemnly, feeling the ripples move them, then discussed it as they walked back through the city, carefully skirting the chanting bands of happy, drunken supporters. "'What did you think?' said Nutt, after a while. "'About the play, I mean.' "'I don't see that it was that romantic,' said Glenda. "'To be honest, I thought it was a bit silly. "'It is widely regarded as one of the great romantic plays of the last fifty years,' said Nutt. "'Really? But what type of example are they setting? First of all, didn't anyone in Genua, even in those days, know how to take a pulse? Is a little first-aid knowledge too much to expect? Even a hand-mirror would have helped. There are quite a number of respectable places where you can take a pulse.' "'I think that's because neither of them were thinking about themselves, perhaps,' said Nutt. "'Neither of them was thinking at all,' said Glenda. "'And they certainly weren't thinking about each other as people. "'A little common sense and they would be alive. "'It's made up, like books. "'I don't think anyone sensible would act like that.' "'He squeezed her hand. "'Sometimes you speak like ladyship,' he said. "'And that reminds me. "'Reminds you of what? "'It's time for me to meet my maker.' Andy Shank walked unsteadily among the night-time alleys, secure in the knowledge that they contained nothing worse than him, a belief which, as it happened, was in error. "'Mr. Shank?' "'Who's asking?' he said, turning around and reaching instinctively into his coat for his new cutlass. But another knife, silver and thin, sliced twice, and a foot expertly stamped the length of his shin and forced him to the ground. "'Me. I'm the happy ending.' "'You can call me the good fairy. "'Don't worry. "'You'll be able to see by the time you wipe the blood out of your eyes, "'and, as they say, now you won't have to pay for a drink in any bar in this town, "'though I suspect you never have.' "'His attacker leaned nonchalantly against the wall. "'And the reason I'm doing this, Mr. Shank, is that I am a bastard. "'I am an old bugger. I am a sod.' They let you get away with it because they were nice people, and, you know, the world needs someone like me to set the balance square. Since before you were born I have known people like you, tormentors, bullies and thieves, ah, oh, yes, thieves, thieves of other people's self-respect, thieves of their peace of mind. Now, Mr. Nutt, he's an orc, and I've heard that he can talk people better.' "'Well, so be it,' say I. "'If it works, he's a genius. "'But that don't square things, not in my book. "'So I thought you ought to meet Pepe, just to say hello. "'If I ever see you again, they'll never find all the pieces. "'But just to show that I have a decent streak, "'here's something to put on your wounds.' "'Something landed softly near Andy's groping hand.' Andy, dripping blood and snot onto the pavement, reached around quickly as the trim little footsteps disappeared, thinking only of getting the blood out of his eyes and revenge and retribution out of his heart. And, in the circumstances, therefore, he should not have wiped the half-lemon across his face. "'You think it's all over?' It is a regrettable fact that when two people are dining at a very large and impressive dining table, they sit at the opposite ends of the long axis. This is incredibly stupid and makes conversation difficult and the passing of food impossible. But even Lord Vetinari and Lady Margolotta had apparently signed up to the idea. On the other hand, they both ate very little, and so there wasn't very much to pass. "'Your secretary seems to be getting on very well with my librarian,' said Lady Margolotta. "'Yes,' observed Vetinari. "'Apparently they are comparing ring-binders. "'He has invented a new one.' "'Well, for the proper working of the world,' said Lady Margolotta, "'it is essential that ring-binders are important to at least one person.' "'She put down her glass and looked towards the door. "'You seem nervous,' said Vetinari. "'Are you wondering how he will come?' "'He has had a very long day, and a remarkably successful one.' "'And you say he's gone to an amateur dramatics performance?' "'Yes, with that very forthright young lady who makes the pies,' said Vetinari. "'I see,' said Lady Margolotta. "'He must know I am here, and he's gone off with a cook.' There was just a trace of a smile on Vetinari's lips. "'Not any cook. A genius amongst cooks.' 
Well, I must admit to being surprised, said her ladyship. And upset, said Vetinari. A little jealous, perhaps? Havelock, you go too far. Would you expect otherwise? Besides, you must surely realize that his triumph is yours, too. Did I tell you that I've seen some of them? said Margolotta after a while. The orcs? Yes, they really are wretched. Of course, people say that about the goblins, and while it is true that they religiously save their own snot, and frankly just about everything else, at least there is a logic to it. Well, a religious logic at least, murmured Vetinari. They tend to be quite stretchable. The egos made them from men, did you know? Vetinari, still holding his glass, walked to the other end of the table and picked up the pepper-pot. No. However, now you tell me it's patently obvious. Goblins would not have been nearly ferocious enough. And they had nothing, said Margolotta. No culture, no legends, no history. He could give them those. Everything they are not, he is, said Vetinari, adding, But that's an enormous weight you're putting on his shoulders. How much is on mine? How much of a weight is on yours? It's rather like being a cart-horse, said Vetinari. After a while one ceases to notice. It's just the way of life. They deserve their chance, and it must be taken now while the world is at peace. Peace, said Vetinari. Ah, yes, defined as a period of time to allow for preparation for the next war. Where did you learn such cynicism, Havelock? Vetinari spun around and began his absent-minded walk along the length of the table again. "'Well, mostly from you, madam, though I have to say that the credit is not all yours, since I have had an extended period of further education as tyrant of this city. I think you allow them too much freedom.' "'Oh, yes, I do. That's why I am still tyrant of this city. The way to retain power—' I have always thought, is to ensure the absolute unthinkability of oneself not being there. I shall help you in any way I can, of course. There should be no slaves, even slaves to instinct. One person can make a difference, said Margolotta. Look at Mr. Shine, who is now Diamond King of Trolls. Look at yourself. If men can fall— Vetinari gave a sharp laugh. Oh, they can indeed— "'Then orcs can rise,' said Margolotta. "'If that is not true, then the universe is not true.' There was a velvet-like knock at the double doors, and Drumnot entered. "'A Mr. Nutt is here, sir,' he added with a certain disdain, "'and he's with that woman who cooks in the university.' Vetinari glanced at Margolotta. "'Yes,' he said. "'I think we should see him in the main hall.' Drumnot coughed. I think I should tell you, sir, that Mr. Nutt acquired entrance to the building through gates that were securely locked. Did he tear them off their hinges? asked Vetinari, with apparent enthusiastic interest. No, sir. He lifted the gates bodily off their hinges and stacked them neatly against the wall. Ah, then there is still hope for the world. And the guards? Drumnot glanced for a moment at Lady Margolotta. I have taken the precaution of stationing some of them inconspicuously in the great hall gallery with crossbows. Stand them down, said Vetinari. Stand them down, said Margolotta. Stand them down, said Vetinari again, directly to Drumnot. He extended his arm to her ladyship. I think the term is, as they put it, aliar yaktar est. The die your ladyship is cast, and we should both see how it falls. "'Will you get into trouble for that?' said Glenda, staying close to Nut as they walked up the steps. The main hall of the palace was an intimidating place when empty, because it had been designed for exactly that purpose. "'Why didn't you just knock like everyone else?' "'My dear Glenda, I am not like anyone else, and neither are you.' "'Then what are you going to do?' "'I don't know. What will ladyship do? I have no idea, although I am becoming aware of how she thinks, and there are a few possibilities I have in mind.' They watched two figures coming down the broad staircase that extended up into the rest of the building. It had been built to accommodate hundreds. The two people coming down looked uncharacteristically small. "'Ah, Mr. Nutt,' said Vetinari, as they had almost reached the bottom step. "'And Miss Sugarbean. I must add my congratulations to the pair of you on the wonderful, albeit surprising, success of unseen academicals. I think you are going to have to make a lot of changes to the rules, sir,' said Nutt. "'Such as?' said Vetinari. 
I think you need assistance for the referee. His eyes can't be everywhere, said Nutt, and there do need to be some more rules, although Mr. Hoggett did the honourable thing, I think. And Professor Rincewind might make a very capable attacker if only you could persuade him to take the ball with him, said Vetinari. I would never tell the Arch-Chancellor this, my lord, but I think he may be better in a more defensive role. Who would you suggest as an alternative, said Vetinari? Well, Charlie, the animated skeleton who works in the Department of Post-Mortem Communications, did very well in trials, and after all, he paused for a moment, yes, after all, none of us can help how we're made. They turned at a tap, tap, tapping behind them. It was Lady Margolotta's foot. Nutt gave a little bow. Ladyship, I trust I find you in adequate health. And you likewise, Nutt, said Lady Margolotta. Nutt turned to Glenda. What was that term you used once? In the pink, said Glenda. Yes, that's right. I'm deeply in the pink, said Nutt. And it's Mr. Nutt, if you please, your ladyship. Would the two of you care to join us upstairs for a late supper? asked Vetinari, watching them both very carefully. No, I don't think we will impose, but thank you very much. I have a lot to do. Lady Margolotta? Yes. Would you come here, please? Glenda watched the expressions, Vetinari's faint smile, her look of affront, Nutt's confidence. The rustle of her long black dress was an audible intoxication as she walked the last few steps towards the orc and stopped. "'Do I have worth?' asked Nutt. "'Yes, Nutt, you do.' "'Thank you,' said Nutt. "'But I am learning that worth is something that must be continuously accumulated. You asked me to be becoming. Have I become?' "'Yes, Nutt, you have become.' "'And what is it you want me to do now?' "'Find the orcs that still live in Far Uberwald "'and bring them back out of the dark.' "'Then there are more orcs, like me,' said Nutt. "'A few dozen, perhaps,' said Margolotta. "'But in truth I could hardly say they are like you. "'They are a sorry bunch.' "'Is it they who should be sorry?' said Nutt. "'Glenda watched the faces. "'Amazingly, Lady Margolotta looked taken aback.' "'Many bad things were done under the evil empire,' she said. "'The best we can do now is undo them. "'Will you assist in this endeavour? "'In every way that I can,' said Nutt. "'I would like you to teach them civilised behaviour," said Ladyship coldly. "'He appeared to consider this. "'Yes, of course, I think that would be quite possible,' he said. "'And who would you send to teach the humans?' There was a brief outburst of laughter from Vetinari, who immediately cupped his hand over his mouth. "'Oh, I do beg your pardon,' he said. "'But since it falls to me,' continued Nutt, "'then yes, I shall go into Far Uberwald.' "'Pastor Oates will be very pleased to see you, I am sure,' said Margolotta. "'He's still alive?' said Nutt. "'Oh, yes, indeed, he is still quite young, after all, and walks with forgiveness at his side. "'I think he would feel it very appropriate if you were to join him.' In fact, he has told me on one of his all too infrequent visits that he would be honoured to pass the rate of forgiveness on to you. Nut doesn't need forgiveness, Glenda burst out. Nut smiled and patted her hand. Uberwald is a wild country for a man to travel in, he said, even a holy man. Forgiveness is the name of Pastor Oates's double-headed battle-axe. For Mr. Oates, the crusade against evil is not a metaphor. Forgiveness cut through my chains. I will gladly carry it. The kings of the trolls and the dwarfs will give you all the help that they can, said Ladyship. Nut nodded. But first I have a small favour to ask you, my lord, he said to Vetinari. By all means, ask. I know the city has a number of golem horses. I wonder if I could borrow one of them. Be my guest, said the patrician. Nut turned to Glenda. Miss Sugarbean. "'Juliet told me that you secretly want to ride through Quirm on a warm summer's evening, feeling the wind in your hair. We could leave now. I have saved money.' All kinds of reasons why she shouldn't foamed in Glenda's head. Everywhere were responsibilities, commitments, and the never-ending clamour of wanting. There were a thousand and one reasons why she should say no. "'Yes,' she said. "'In that case, then, we will not take up any more of your valuable time, my lord, my lady, and will head off to the stables.' "'But,' Lady Margolotta began, "'I think all that needs to be said has been,' said Nutt. "'I will, we will, of course, visit you shortly when I have settled my affairs here, and I look forward very much to doing so.' He nodded to them, 
and, with Glenda walking on air beside him, went back the way they had come. "'Wasn't that nice?' said Vetinari. "'Did you see that they held hands all the time?' At the doorway, Nut turned round. "'Oh, just one more thing. Thank you for not posting archers up in the gallery. That would have been so embarrassing.' "'I shall drink to your success, Margolotta,' said Vetinari, as their footsteps died away. "'You know—' I seriously intended to proposition Miss Sugarbean to be my cook, he sighed again. Still, what is a pie to a happy ending? You think it's all over? The following morning, Ponder Stibbons was at work in the high-energy magic building when Ridcully limped in. There was a glowing silver band around his knee. Grape Shot's Therapeutic Squeezer, he announced. A simple little spell. I'll be right as rain in no time. Mrs. Whitlow wanted me to put a stocking on it, but I told her I'm not interested in that sort of thing. I'm glad to see that you're in such good spirits, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder, working his way down a long calculation. Have you had a chance to see the papers yet this morning, Mr. Stibbons? No, sir, what with the football business, I'm a little behind with my work. It may interest you to know that late last night a seventy-foot-high chicken broke out of what they are pleased to call the Higher Energy Magic Building at Brazenick and is apparently rampaging through Pseudopolis while being pursued by most of the faculty, who, I assume, would be quite capable of terrorising the city all by themselves. Henry has just had a frantic clax and has had to rush off. Oh, that is very disturbing, sir. Yes, it is, isn't it? said Ridcully. Apparently it's laying eggs very fast. Ah, that sounds like a quasi-expansion blit phenomenon, adapting itself to a living organism, said Ponder. He turned the page, his pencil moving neatly across the column of figures. The former dean has egg all over his face, said Ridcully. Well, I'm sure that Professor Turnipseed will be able to bring things back under control, said Ponder. The tone of his voice was entirely unchanged. There was a busy little silence, and Ridcully said, how long do you think we should give him to get it under control? What size are the eggs? Eight or nine feet high, apparently, said Ridcully. With calcium shells? Yes, quite thick, so I'm told. Ponder looked thoughtfully at the ceiling. Hmm, that's not too bad, then. If you'd said steel, it would have been rather worrying. It sounds very much like a blit devolution, possibly caused by lack of experience. "'I thought you taught Mr. Turnipseed everything you know,' said Ridcully, looking happier than Ponder had seen him in a very long time. "'Well, sir, perhaps there was something he didn't quite grasp. Are people at risk?' "'The wizards have told everyone to stay indoors.' "'Well, sir, I think if I got some of my equipment together we could leave about tea-time.' "'I'll come too, of course,' said Ridcully. He looked at Ponder. "'And—' uh, "'What?' said Ponder. He looked at Ridcully's grin. Yes, it might be a good idea if one of the gentlemen from the Times came along to take pictures. They might be very good for instructional purposes. An extremely good plan, Mr. Stibbons, and I think we should take the senior faculty as well. They will lend some much-needed... He snapped his fingers. What's the word? Confusion, said Ponder. No, no, not that, said Ridcully. Appetite, said Ponder. Wait. Something like that. Ah, gravitas. Oh, yes, lots of gravitas. We aren't the kind of fellows who run around chasing strange birds. I'll see you after lunch. And now I have other matters to deal with. Yes, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder. Oh, and, um, what about the proposed football match? Regrettably, it appears that it'll have to wait until they have rebuilt the university. That's a shame, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder. He carried on with the calculation until the very last figures danced into place, made sure the Arch-Chancellor had left gave a very small smile, which you might not have noticed had you not expected it, and then pulled another ledger towards him. It was another good day. It is now. This recording of Unseen Academicals by Terry Pratchett was produced and directed by Maurice Leach and performed by Stephen Briggs. It was recorded at Motivation Sound Studios London by Norman Goodman and Tim Garrett. It was edited by Dan King. Mixing and mastering were by Harper Audio. We hope you've enjoyed this programme from Harper Audio. For more information about the broad range of titles from Harper Audio, Harper Children's Audio and Cademon, please visit our website at www.harperaudio.com. Thank you for listening.